Bruce Almighty movie. I've got the power. <laughs> Wonderful. Actually, pretty deep <laughs> before it's done, isn't it? Okay, this is a discussion of uh, Christianity in a pluralistic age. And I'm not going to get as grandiose as the title, uh, but just try to discuss some basic issues that have to do with pluralism. And of course, the opposite of pluralism now is exclusivism. And the idea is that Christians are nasty because they're exclusive. And uh, so I want to just uh, uh, say at the outset that that is the issue. It is not, um, it's not some elevated philosophical issue, though it has philosophical issues embedded in it. The real question is whether or not it makes any difference if you're a Christian. And in particular, does it make any kind of ultimate difference? In the end, does everyone wind up at the same place? Now, if I'm not mistaken about the sorts of people who are here at this conference, we don't believe that everyone winds up at the same place, right? And that's one reason why so many of you have poured out and you are pouring out your life to plant churches, to develop congregations, to reach your communities, is because you believe that it really makes a difference. And um, it's hard to imagine that anyone would be willing to lay their lives out in that way uh, unless it did make a huge difference. That's really the issue, is does it make a difference whether or not you are a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, and if you can cut it down a little further, uh, whether or not you are Christian. And there is a tremendous animus against the idea that it does. So, uh, now pluralism, in one sense, it's just a fact. There are always have been, and there are now, distinct, different human groupings. And traditionally, those have been along racial lines, uh, or at a minimum, minimum, cultural lines. And the tradition of humanity in its natural state is not to be welcoming to other kinds of people. And for much of the history of much of the world, other kinds of people could be eaten, for example. And uh, that's just a fact, right? And then uh, in what we might call more civilized times, uh, still today in many parts of the world, uh, if you are of another caste, for example, or some radical distinction, and uh, then you can be treated differently. The basic idea of inclusivism, or diversity, or there are various words that go along with that, is that it's a normative idea that we should not treat other kinds of people 
in ways that are harmful to them because of these natural differences. And of course, not one of the least of these is the difference between male and, fem male and female. But race is still a huge issue. It's still a huge issue in this country. I'm sure you've noticed. And uh, to, to be able to deal with uh, legal distinctions or distinctions supported by law, differences of treatment, doesn't actually often change the basic attitudes of people. Uh, to genuinely be inclusive in your heart is a great spiritual accomplishment. A great spiritual accomplishment. And that's one reason why we need to look back at the scriptures and realize that it's in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we find that God wants people treated the same under the law. That's Old Testament. That's not New Testament. And uh, if you, for example, will, not just now, I think, because I found last time around I was moving too slowly, that I'll give you some scripture references like Numbers 15, Numbers 15, verses 15 through 16. Or Leviticus 19, verse 34. Or Exodus 12, 49. You will find that the divine revelation of the old law said that there should be one law for the Jews and for the strangers or aliens who lived in their midst. One law, not two. This is what we call today equality before the law. That is God's idea. That's God's idea. And of course, when you move on up, you realize that it isn't just enough to have equality before the law. You actually should love everyone. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And a natural expression of that would be dealing with people equally and not discriminating among uh, people uh, in terms of their treatment for what is good and bad uh, because of their differences of religion, uh, race, and so on. Now, there are a lot of difficulties involved in that, okay, when you start to do it. And I don't... I don't think I can effectively deal with them very much, but the idea should be very clear that this is God's idea. And then when we come to the issue of how people stand before God, that becomes similarly a matter of division. Does God make a difference between people? And does if he does, how does he do that? And most of us would say, well, you don't get to go to heaven because of your color or your gender or your race. Well, what about other ways? Does God allow um, people of different kinds to stand equally before him? And I think you may agree that a major point in the New Testament is precisely that these differences are to be set aside. In Colossians 3, for example, the writer, Paul, is saying that we should put on the new person, 
that is renewed in knowledge so that we would see people the way God sees them in which there is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcision, no uncircumcision, no barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and all. And in that day, the Scythian was like the bottom of the human barrel. When the Scythians were coming, that's when the barbarians said, now there are barbarians. <laughs> and and you, can, you, you, know, you can work that out. It's just a matter of history. These were really bad people. Um, and, uh, but now here we are. They're sitting right here in the congregation of Christians. Are you a Scythian? I'm Jewish. You're Jewish, okay. <laughs> Sitting right here in the congregation. In Christ. See. And they, they've been renewed. Now that, that's God's idea, I think. But then someone comes along and says, well, but what about non-Christians? Are they equal before God? Does it make any difference to God? And so the issue of truth comes up, and truth has built into it a logical exclusiveness. It has built into it a logical exclusiveness. And the Christian, not every per people call Christian now, but most of us here, I think, would say, well, there is an issue of truth. And truth has an exclusiveness built into it. For example, if uh, someone's shirt is white, it can't be black. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think about that, or how you feel about it, or how you vote on the issue. Uh, that's, the how, that's how truth is, and reality reflects that. If the house is on fire, it's on fire. Okay. So we generally accept that because it is simply a matter of logic. So whatever we might say about the Christian religion in relationship to non-religion or other religions, we have to take that into account. And the person who says things like, well, all religions are the same. They teach the same thing. Of course, that just isn't true. All, all you have to do is gain some familiarity with them, and you see that there are radical differences in truth. Now, what does one do with that? See, that's, well, Christianity has something to say about that also. And uh, its teaching is that there is a God who loves everyone, even those who are wrong, and that we as Christians are to be inclusive in that sense, that we are to love everyone. And then there's a certain mind built into that, because if we love everyone, we will want them to know the truth because we know it makes a great difference. And so if we 
see the houses on fire, love will constrain us to let people know that. And very few people would say you're being intolerant to people who don't believe the house is on fire. Even though we might be wrong and they might be right. So truth makes some demands beyond just logical exclusiveness. It depends on what is true. And if there is great harm in one course of action, then love constrains us to let that be known. Okay. And it says, you can't just say it doesn't matter. You can't, you can't just say whatever you believe is okay. So now we have something of a bind there, I think, uh, that uh, causes many people a lot of trouble. And partly for good reason, we do want to be tolerant, and that's a good principle, and actually it's a Christian principle. If you find a society that is tolerant, and please correct me when I'm wrong, uh, it will be one that is rooted in the teachings of Christ and the Bible. And that's, if that's, I mean, that's an empirical claim, and it, that means that it's a question of fact, and if there are other uh, societies that have uh, tolerance as a basic principle of society, I would very much like to know about it. Um, but the principle of Christian love as it comes down through the teachings to us today, through people like John Locke and others, uh, is one that says you should not punish people and make them suffer or exclude them from the goods of life just because of differences in religion. But that still leaves us with this problem because people want to say that if you believe in the truth that Christians teach, you are being unfairly exclusive. That pluralism says all religions are the same and we ought to treat them as the same. And that would mean we wouldn't say things like, well, if you are a member of one religion or no religion, you do not have access to God as Christians do, as followers of Christ that that is unfairly exclusive, that that is not pluralistic enough. So we seem to be faced with a choice that's considerable, uh, that is challenging. Do we have to give up truth in order to be tolerant? Or is tolerance limited by truth and in fact does truth provide the basis for tolerance? And not just for tolerance, but for genuine love and for helping people without regard to their religious beliefs. Okay, so that's one side of the problem uh, that I hope you will see. That there is a problem here between truth and tolerance. 
And it seems as if, to some people, it seems as if you have to give up one or the other. And that if you claim to know the truth, you are by definition intolerant. That's one side of it. And the other side of it says, well, what's your basis for tolerance? And is tolerance really enough? If I say, well, I'm going to tolerate you, how do you feel about that? Pretty good if otherwise I'm going to take your head off. Right? <laughs> Pretty good. Thank you very much. But, you know, after all, being tolerated is different from being cared for and loved and respected. And that is what I would say is founded in Christian truth. Does the Christian have a way of being plural? Now, um, I'm going to move on here and try to have plenty of time for discussion. Uh, but the next issue here is, well, is there a basis for Christians being pluralistic? Now, what would that mean? Well, that might mean something. Could you be right with God and not a Christian? So let's state it baldly here and see what we can do with that. What would be the basis for Christian pluralism? Answer, God. The Christian understanding of God could be the basis for pluralism in the sense of allowing that someone might be right with God and not a Christian. See? Could that be true? Could it be true? I'll just restate it. Could it be true that there is a basis in the Christian understanding of God for saying that someone might be right with God without being a Christian? Well, I hope I've got you thinking about it. I think I have, okay? Could that be true? It's, it's an important point because normally the objection that is made to Christians along these lines is you are saying to me that unless I am a Christian, I can't be right with God. Okay. Could it be that the Christian teaching is that God is so good that he might accept some people who were not Christians? Now, just in order to make it as clear as possible what I'm saying to you so you can, as clear as possible, disagree with me and straighten me out, I want to say that that's exactly the case. That what we come to know about God through Jesus Christ tells us that anyone who in God's eyes should be claimed by him will be. God is not going to do an injustice. And not, not most people are already on board with that for children. Right? I don't know anyone today uh, among even extremely conservative theologians who would say, 
that a child who lives in outer Mongolia and never heard of Christ, if they die, will go to hell. Now the Catholic Church for many, many years had a place called Limbo for them to go. Them and a few other people. And there they were, they were stuck. But limbo wasn't even as good as purgatory because in purgatory, you eventually get out. In limbo, you're just stuck. Now the Pope, with his counselors, I think about three years ago, decided to abolish limbo. I hope they let everyone out that was there. <laughs> I hope they didn't just leave them stuck there. And, well, nobody else goes in, but you're there. Actually, limbo was an effort on the part of the church at the time to be compassionate. But I think that you probably and I would say, there's no need for that. There's no need for that. God can manage to accept a child that has never heard of Jesus Christ and has not been baptized because that was the thing. If if you just had a Christian nurse who baptized the child before it died, it would not go to limbo, it would go to purgatory. But I think most people want to say, no, God is not like that. God is not unfair, and that would be unfair. And so let me, in order to be as plain as possible about what I'm saying is, if there is an issue of fairness, God comes out on the fair side. And we really don't want to present a picture of God other than that because we know the heart of God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is a Christian pluralism. Mm -hmm. Yes? I'm confused by your definition of Christian pluralism. It sounds right. like you're speaking more about Christian inclusivism in regards to salvation, not necessarily Inclusivism and pluralism, I'm thinking along the same lines. Uh, the, the inclusivism says there's a pluralism and we include them. Uh, now, there is a view of God according to which he's very happy to send people to hell. This, this is a part of many people's Christianity. I used to preach down in Texas, in Dallas, Texas, with a great, a great-hearted old guy who was an All-American end on Texas A&M's football team, and uh, and he, when he would get wound up, uh, sometimes he would say, "God's going to skip them sinners across the lake of fire like a boy skips a rock across a pond." I see that's a view that God enjoys. punishing sinners. And every chance he gets, he'll indulge. Right? And the scripture says God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It says he wants everyone to be saved. And if you weren't told that and you were just told what Jesus said about God, you might think that he was going to do everything he could to get everyone who could stand it into heaven. 
He clearly didn't think everyone was going to go there. Right? And this is one of the points at which a genuinely pluralistic, inclusivist way of thinking departs from what I believe is not only a historically true, but a valid way of thinking about God's intentions for humanity. God is a good God. He's going to do what is right. And if there is any unfairness, it isn't going to be for him. He's going to do the right thing. I want to give you a couple of passages from the New Testament to think about on this. The first one is in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and following. Paul in this passage is dealing with the failure of religion to make people right with God. And he's specifically talking to people who are of the Jewish religion and their confidence that by being a Jew, they would be right with God. And others, because they're not Jews, would not be right with God. It transfers exactly to Christianity if you understand what he's saying. Now here's what he says, verse six. Who will render to every man according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress. For every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, the Jew, the religious person, will be treated exactly like the Greek. And you know this chapter, I'm sure, and you understand how it goes on to talk about he is a Jew, not one outwardly, but inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart and not of the body. So that's what the whole chapter is about. Now, that wasn't the common attitude of most people who were Jewish in that day. And I just ask you to look at one other verse where this comes to a head in Acts 10, verse 34. And this is Peter and his experience with the Roman household of Cornelius. And you know the story of how led up to this and how God was trying to help Peter see beyond uh, what was unclean and clean in the Jewish religion, and how he had his vision on the housetop, and he was—he said uh, he was hungry, and God sent down animals that were marked as unclean, and and Peter said, "Not so, Lord. I will not. I've never done this." And and uh, the Lord insisted upon it, and did, went through the routine three times to get the point over. And now then, here comes someone and asks him to go to the house of a Gentile, and he's got the message, and so he goes. And when he gets there, um, he begins to speak to the household of Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit falls upon it. And Peter now has a quandary. How could this be? And verse 
34 and 35 of Acts 10 explains, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So there seems to be a condition of the heart which God looks to, and on the basis of that condition, not that people rise to God, but that God meets them. Not because they deserve it and have earned it, but because God in his wisdom sees their heart and responds to them and finds them, as he did in the case of Cornelius and others that we could mention even in the whole, in the whole Bible. Now this is not saying everything's okay. It's not saying all religions are the same. It's not saying whether you believe in God or what, you're okay. It doesn't say anything like that. And it's important to understand that Paul is not just throwing the door open and saying. Now we're having trouble with that now in evangelical circles. That is why both reincarnation and universalism are reemerging in evangelical circles. Reincarnation in order that people can go around enough times to get it right. And the idea is everyone will eventually make it. That's one way that some of our most well-known theologians in evangelical circles have of dealing with this problem of the righteousness of God with reference to pluralism or inclusivism. Okay, I know the tension, I understand that. See, universalism is an old story in American religion and elsewhere. One, one, way it, one form it took was a kind of backside of a certain version of Calvinism. So if you say Christ died for all men, then all men are saved. That's why one of the five points of Calvinism is limited atonement. Did you know that? Right? Limited atonement. So universalism has a great pull to it, and you have to understand really that that's what's back of a lot of the pluralistic tendencies in our society. And of course the question is, is it true? And if it's not true, if some people genuinely do take the wrong path and wind up in the wrong place, how can God be good and do that? And how can Christians be good and claim that? Okay, so now let me draw a distinction here by reference to the well-known statement, which is almost like the bone of contention here, which is the statement in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who is speaking? Well, often you hear it said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's an important difference here. That verse does not say Jesus. It says, I am. And I am is a special term that John uses over and over to help us understand who is talking in the Gospel of John. You'll notice that the Gospel of John does not begin with a story about Mary. 
it begins with creation. In the beginning was the Word, right? And it sets the tone, and you get a very different picture of who Jesus was, one which the people who he was talking to in John 14 didn't understand. See, they knew Jesus, but they didn't know who he was. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go away, but you know where I'm going, and you know the way, and at that point they were totally lost. Right? <laughs> and of course, good old Philip says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus' response is, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you haven't known me? And you know what? They hadn't. They had little glimpses. They were getting something, but they didn't know him. And you, you may know that right at the end of John 20, you have that verse which says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus, the fellow you know, is the Christ. The identity here. Who is speaking in the Gospel of John is the Logos that is introduced in chapter 1, and the word I am, I am the door, I am the light, I am, see that's, that I am stuff comes out of the third chapter of Exodus, where God identifies himself to Moses by saying, you tell them I am that I am. See, that's biblical language that now comes to be applied to Christ, and this is the one who's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So now let me try to pull that together by saying, Christ is clearly exclusive. But is Christianity. Are Christ and Christianity the same? Well, possibly not. Possibly not. That I think we do want to say on the basis of John's Gospel and other things that we might learn from other parts of the Scriptures, that Christ is exclusive, but that Christ is greater than Christianity. Now then, the real challenge is, is can one say in good conscience, people can access Christ without going through Christianity? There's a very interesting things happening in the world today, especially in the Muslim world. I know a bunch of navigators that are working in Indonesia and trying to come to grips with the issue, can I know Christ and follow him without being a Christian? And that's important because of the issues that are involved for the Muslim in thinking about becoming a Christian. The same issue comes up for Jewish people. Can I be Jewish and follow Christ? Now, there are a lot of issues here, and I, I want to quickly get along and see what, question, what issues you want to raise. 
But I think that when you look at the teachings of the New Testament and you think about the view of Christ and of God that is presented there, you might want to say God is accessible to those who seek him in the right way and have a heart that is turned toward, not that they earn it. You don't earn salvation under any. Not that they're not sinners. They are sinners. Not that they're not saved by grace. They are saved by grace, if they're saved at all. I think that's a part that you can't turn loose of that in the understanding of Christian salvation. But that God is not limited to Christianity in how he reaches human beings is a thought we need to think. And I believe that a Christian view of God, that is a view of God derived through knowledge of Jesus Christ, will say to you that what Paul says in Romans 2 and what Peter says in Acts 10 is profoundly and importantly true. Not saying everyone is okay. John in his first letter takes the breath away from a lot of people by saying if anyone loves, they are of God. Now, you have to be careful with that because you're apt to cut love down where it means you're a jolly good fellow. And Jesus sets the standard on what love is. But he just says simply, because he understands what love is, he that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. You still have the problem of how you get there, right? But we're talking here about, is what God does fair? And we want, I think, to avoid, on the basis of what we've come to understand about God, we want to avoid the idea that he is not going to be fair and that he's going to do something that is not right. Now that's very important, I believe, for those of us who are here to present Christ as the hope of the world. And I have said nothing that is contrary to that. Christ is the hope of the world. And as far as I am concerned, you can translate that into Jesus as the hope of the world. But someone who has never heard of Jesus, that's not helpful. Or someone who has severely misunderstood what they've heard. That's not helpful. And so a Christian pluralism, I believe, opens a door that does not involve earning your salvation, uh, your own righteousness. Uh, it doesn't uh, um, suggest that anyone is saved by works, but they are saved by grace. It say they are saved because God finds their heart something that he responds to. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
to show himself strong on the behalf of those hearts, those whose hearts are perfect towards him. Jesus said in John 4, God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And on this topic, I would encourage you, please, to make a careful study of John 4 and see what's going on there. Again, it's precisely a discussion of who is right in terms of Jerusalem or Samaria. It's a discussion about religion. Religion creates a lot of problems. Um, in his last years, Billy Graham was asked if he believed heaven would be closed to good Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, or secular people. He wisely replied, those are decisions only the Lord will make. I would be, it would be foolish for me to speculate on who will be there and who won't. I don't want to speculate about all that. I believe the love of God is absolute. He said he gave his son for the whole world. I think he loves everybody, regardless of what label they have. A Christian pluralism is based upon the understanding of God. Now, let's put in a few qualifications and then we will open the floor for assertions and questions. One of the questions that comes up is with reference to Acts 4.12. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And you might take that to say that if you don't know that name, Jesus, you would not be going to heaven when you die to put it right on the line. And you need to rethink that in terms of the context. That statement is an answer to a question that was asked of them. And that question was, in whose name did you heal this man? And you want to think about the name in the context of the book of Acts. Because the name of Jesus was given to the apostles to provide access to the power of the kingdom of God. And it is a question about in whose name that he's answering when he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. It's not a context where people are discussing who's going to go to heaven when they die. They are discussing who has access to the power to heal the lame man. And salvation or being saved is not just a matter of having your sins forgiven. It's a matter of deliverance. The understanding, general understanding of salvation in the Bible is deliverance. And then you have to understand what the particular deliverance in question is. And here again, I mean, all I can do is beg you to take your old concordance and do inductive Bible study on the words. 
especially words like salvation. And what Peter is saying is there's no other name given under heaven among men that is a part of the stream of human history whereby these kinds of things can be done. Now context, you all know, is the key to interpretation. You have to look at the context to know what the verse means and what the words mean. And so it's important to take the verses that cause the issue to narrow down in a certain way, like John 14, what is it, 1410, and Acts 4:12, and get their meaning and not just take our meaning and put it on it. Uh, one more thing let me say about this before opening it up. Uh, when you ask this question, will good Christians, Hindus or whatever, be saved, you have to understand the ambiguity that is in that. One is, a, a person who is good and is a Christian, or a person who is a good Christian. Now, good Christian doesn't necessarily mean a good person. Is that true? Have you ever known a mean Christian? And certainly historically, for example, good Christians went on the Crusades. See, good Christian has standards and that comes down to denominational levels. I had to learn at one point in my younger life that it was more important in my social setting for me to, good, to be a good Baptist than to be a good Christian. And there were standards for that. Had to do with things like how you were baptized, about whether or not you had open or closed communion, that is whether communion was limited to the people who were members of the local church, or people who were not but were believers in Christ. Of course, that, that's a kind of an inheritance from an older system where the Mass or the Eucharist was an expression of the grace that the church had on tap and was only for certain people who were in good standing with the church. So being a good Christian is one thing. Being a good person is perhaps another. Being a good Hindu, a good Buddhist, a good Republican, or Democrat even, right? So all of these classifications, when we think about, well, is a good such and such going to make it, make the cut? We want to understand that being a good, you got the classification, is one thing, being a good person with a heart that God respects and looks to might be another. Now, final thing I want to say, and then hopefully you'll have some things to say. To say that God receives people on the basis of their heart is not to preach the gospel. That is not good news. 
partly because the issue of who has a good heart is very troubling. And people tend to deceive themselves about whether or not they have a good heart. I would never say to someone, I would never try to assure them that they have the heart that God is looking for. I don't know them well enough to know that. I don't know how I could, and I doubt that they know themselves well enough to know that. So Christian pluralism is not the gospel. It's more like a loophole. W.C. Fields was found reading the Bible a short while before he died. And someone said, have you been converted? He said, no, I'm looking for a loophole. And the person who's looking for a loophole is probably the one who won't get one. And actually, a lot of people are looking for a loophole. And the goodness of God is not a loophole. It is certainly relatively limited. And I would never suggest to anyone, for example, that, well, if you want to know God, you should do perfect, you should do continued goodness and seeking for God and all of that sort of thing. I would never say that. And I would never assure anyone that they were in on that basis. I'm not sure anyone is. And you say, well, what's the point? The point is that God is going to do the right thing. You can count on that. That's who God is. And we do need, of course, a long time to talk about the issue of judgment. And maybe you want to get into that. But... Uh, what we are in a position to do is to preach the gospel that anyone, by putting their trust in Jesus, can enter the kingdom of God and know the life that is from above. And if anyone wants to claim another way, that's their responsibility. We try to help them as much as possible. Because that is an act of love. And just as it is an act of love to say the house is on fire, even if you're wrong about it, if you are assured that it is, you don't want to do anything but help people come to terms with that. The same is even more true with reference to missing the life that is eternal. And I want to just come back to that as I close, and, and that is the reason we're here and the reason for your lives as planters, church planters, is because there is a truth of the matter and it is an act of love to help people deal with this tremendous issue that has eternal implications. So let me conclude with that and see what you would like to say uh, or ask. Yes, sir, and you're next. <laughs>
I just don't have any basis for that in anything that I know. That's essentially a purgatory version. And there are a lot of things I would like to be able to assure people of that I just can't. Lewis was very high church, very close to uh, a Catholic view of these matters. And I don't mean to attack them, and it may be true, but I could never, I can't find any basis to assure people of that. Back here, and then you're next. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. That's okay. I'm, I'm often in that position. <laughs> Basically, in dealing with this pluralism, mm -hmm. Is not what? Okay. But now, if he does that, wouldn't you have it? That would be if I follow it. <laughs> if I yes, good. Okay. If I believe right. Yeah. The difference is I don't know, I don't know which one of us is going on. Most of the time, I think it's me. And it doesn't have much to do with the rest of us. But the, the sense of Mm-hmm. I read, I just go, I don't know. Okay. And in that I don't know, I totally rely on the Holy Spirit to to uh, have its way out through those books. And that I need to be in a contemplative state of full acceptance of whatever that might be, even my own faith. Let alone the faith of everyone else. But the acceptance of the faith of everyone is is effectively part of my responsibility in that I have to be in an attitude to accept the Holy Spirit to be able to sit as Jesus has instructed us has shown us to be in this acceptance of, of all for me to think that I have the knowledge base to make me ever be able to claim I really know who was, who wasn't, who can, who can't, mm -hmm. is, is more acting more like God than anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I have no way to explain it. And so I'm not 
said that, I'm wondering what your response is as to Mr. Mark is the only you got, you got a hole over here that needs to be you need to get clarified. Well, um, I think I would want to know you feel comfortable, shall we say, as we say nowadays? Do you feel comfortable in telling people that if they will put their confidence in Christ, they can be sure of what's going to happen to them? I, I believe so. Okay. All right. Uh huh. Well, uh, see, that's one reason why the question is hard to, your comment is hard to respond to, uh, is because it has a lot of assumptions about knowledge, and you just use the word absolute and so on. And many people think, for example, if they say they know something, it must be something called absolute, it must be infallible, and so on. And I think that is a, a mistaken picture of what knowledge is. Um, and certainly, uh, if you, if you, I'm sure you know some things, or am I wrong about that? Yeah. You know things, right? That's right. <laughs> right. So you do have some knowledge. And you do have some faith, and you are able to identify that in yourself, and something about how it works. And probably you can share that with others, and probably you do, right? Um, now, when you get over into what is absolute and infallible and all of that, I think we're pretty much lost. Because that's one reason why people wind up saying, I don't really know anything. It's because they know they're not infallible. Um, but I think if we just sort of stick to the simple cases, we can begin to build an understanding of how we would live in a world and deal with other people about an issue like faith in God, committing yourself to Christ, believing in Christ, perhaps even knowing something about that. But we do have to take it piece by piece and move slowly with love and humility. Um, I, I would stop short of saying we should simply never say anything about it. Far short, because I think we owe it to others to share what we believe and what we know, as we would if we were buying furniture or making an investment. It's essentially on a continuum. And you're investing your life in Christ. Well, what do you know about that and how does it work? Now, I want to stay away just as, that's why I read Graham's quote, is making grand judgment about who's in and who's out. Now, I can talk about who's in. That, I think, I think is an experimental issue. And you can know that. By opening your life, to the action of God in such a way that you come to actually know God is involved in your life. And you can explain that to others and invite them to put it to the test. 
but I think that uh, this distinction here is helpful because we often get wrapped up in being a good such and such and that pulls us away from being a good person and we may even think we don't have to be a good person because we're a good such and such. And that I think is a real, real problem. I'm sure I haven't begun to respond to the issues you've raised, but that's about the best I could do, I think. And this gentleman here, and then we've got someone in the corner. One of the things being considered is this afternoon is the possibility that um, someone of another faith mm -hmm. could could love Jesus and follow him as best he or she understands Jesus. The next, the next step might be the idea of the cosmic Christ that the person who might not know Jesus at all, but whose heart longs for God as he or she understands yes. God, that, that the Christ would mediate on, on that person's behalf. Yes. So that seems like the next step beyond what you already mentioned, and I'd just mm -hmm. like your comment on, on that. Well, actually, I'm not sure it's even the next step. It seems to be the heart of the matter. That what Paul is saying and what Peter is saying is really that, uh, and John is saying, is that God is looking for people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And that he meets them and brings them to himself. Again, not because they're sinless or they've earned it or anything, but because he sees their heart and thinks this is good and right that I should do this. So salvation is still of the Lord. It is not a human arrangement. So I think those are so close, I guess I would just say they, to me they seem to be pretty much the same thing. And then this gentleman back here and then we're coming here. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on, on the second half of that? I mean, no one comes to the Father but through me. Does he, or can you, I mean, I don't want to. Well, I, but what I mean by that is that, uh, that you don't make it to the Father without Christ reaching out and bringing you in. That it isn't, I think one of the worst mistakes in human history is the idea that you can make it yourself. And that that is sort of the individual, universal application of the story about Babel. It's the idea about human effort to reach God. And I don't think that happens. I do think there are, perhaps, perhaps I think there are surely some people like this, though I would, not have to, I would not want to have to judge which ones, but I think there are some whom God does bring to himself through Christ, the, the Logos, the, the I am, because he sees that they are seeking him and uh, thinks it is suitable and right to bring them in. But as I say, that's not the Christian gospel. That's not what we preach. Actually, Paul is bringing it up because he's dealing with people who think they're going to make it because they are a good uh, Jew, really. He's talking to Jews when he is in that chapter, but he means it for everyone. So that, that's, I think we want to stay with that. 
This is the light that lights everyone who comes into the world. He is near to everyone. And I think that is the teaching of biblical monotheism. Uh, yes, sir, and then who, yes. Hi, um, if it's cool, I have one quick qualification just to help me to understand a little bit, and then I'll try. a statement that I'd like to see your response to. But first, just to uh, qualify, um, what, what is your use of Christian? Uh, are you using Christian as in a religious system with doctrinal beliefs and a proclamation? Are you using Christian in the sense of Christianus, as in a little Christ or one becoming like Christ following after Christ, because then that kind of is a distinction between someone who is a good Christian in the religious sense mm -hmm. is, I would agree, but a good Christian in, I believe, the proper understanding of the original mm -hmm. intention of the term, well, then that would be someone who is following after Christ. So just to qualify what your use of Christian in that. And speaking of Christian pluralism, when, yeah, when you're saying about good Christian, the, you know, those type of things. Well, you know, uh, okay, okay. Uh, a good Christian who is not necessarily a good person, obviously that miss, misses your little Christ category, right? So you're actually bringing up the difference here that I have in mind. And we can say good Hindu, good Buddhist, or so on. And my view is no one is going to be accepted and right with God because they are in that sense a good Christian, a good Hindu, a good whatever. Because you can be a good, you name the category, and be a mean person. Someone who hates God and loves themselves. Okay, yeah, because that's where I was just, because yeah. with your example okay. of Romans, how it later mm -hmm. goes into Paul qualifying what makes you a true Jew and, and distinguishing between Mm -hmm. uh, ethnic Judaism and what makes mm -hmm. it a true Jew. Mm -hmm. But then my statement is, I, I think sometimes uh, the issue that, of who is in and out comes from the fact of not the question of who is in and is out, but the fact that we've missed what in is and what out is. Yeah. And so within that, uh, having the view of heaven and hell not focused on the reality of a Greek form of you know paradise and physical torment, but <coughs> restoration and unity with God or separation from God, I think of C.S. Lewis who said that um, for, for him who does not desire, to God, desire God to go to heaven, it would be hell to him. And so within that, um, I guess my thinking is that when we no longer understand heaven and hell as in, you know, kind of a Santa Claus, like coal or presence, but understand heaven and hell as in being restored to our original intention and restored to God. Um, I Or not. In, yeah, but in looking in Romans 1 then mm -hmm. is that he says that it's not an issue of available knowledge. It's an issue that we suppress the available knowledge because we desire to be autonomous from God mm -hmm. and worship lesser things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess for me, that's where um, so often I hear the debate back and forth of universalism and everything else within the realm of, of eternal bliss, but within that, what's the point of universalism? What's the point of someone going to heaven if they do not desire to be restored and to be in communion with God? Well, I don't know. I can't add anything to that. I think you've, you've made a good statement. 
And uh, I like to say, I believe it's true, that the fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. And if you're not well equipped for it, it's not going to be a pleasant stay. So we have these pictures of what heaven is kind of uh, uh, sandals in the sky or something. Uh, and it isn't, that's not the picture. Thank you. Yes, sir? Uh, how, does, um, how does what you're, what you're talking about, I, I, um, Christ is not the same thing as Christianity, and, and, and uh, there's a question here in regards to that as well, in terms of, because what I wrote down was, what is Christianity? And, and you were sort yeah. of thinking in terms of this, this system that's, that's well, but I mean, what are, what are you, how would you define that? Uh, I wouldn't. I don't think it's definable. Okay. Christianity is not a scriptural term. It isn't one that does much for you in terms of understanding life uh, because of what that means uh, in so many places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, still, in particular places, there is the idea of being a good Christian. Yeah. And you think of what that might mean in Lebanon, for example, yeah. or in other places, and you realize that uh, uh, it doesn't have uh, a definite meaning. Now this is a problem for us because we now have adopted a form of churchianity, if you wish, that accepts the idea that you can be a Christian and never become a disciple. See? And that would mean, so at, at a minimum, that would mean someone who is actually learning from Christ how to do the things that he said or to become the kind of person. So it's a real problem. Uh, you know, and uh, it's, um, uh, it's even if you use denominational terms. Today we live in a population that I remember one, I had one friend uh, out in Colorado there who was a Lutheran and trying to start a Lutheran church and people in his community would say, are Lutherans Christians? You know? Because our population now is just at sea on all of this and we really do need to renew the language that we use in trying to reach people and bring them knowledge of Christ. How, how would it, can I ask a follow-up question? Yes, so of course. How, how, would it, how would it interface then with, um, with, with the church or with, uh, let, me, let me get right, right to it. I, I've, I've read I mean, like sacramental theology mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the church is an ontological reality versus the church as a purely functional kind of reality for gathering disciples I don't know that you can interface with it. The ecclesiology is so confused now in people's minds. Uh, there is a sense of the church as the body of Christ, the people who are called out. That's where your name, Ecclesia, comes from. The people who are actually called out and called in to the kingdom of Christ. And that is one fairly definite sense of the word church you can give. Uh, and then a local congregation also has a fairly definite sense to it. But, uh, for example, is a denomination a church? Uh, probably not. Though I guess it would depend upon, is, is the group that 
gathers around Ecclesia is that a church. So I don't know how to line it up with that. I think it's very hard to know what to say to that kind of question. This gentleman back here and then you, and I'm not for sure if we're out of time, but Chris, if you would throw a shoe at us when it's done. Yes, sir. Right. It seems to be very. Uh, it seems to be very essential in your framework. Yes, it is. So, uh, so as such, I guess the question I would have is: Jesus avoided the label guilt. Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way. You're referring to Mark ten, I gather, yeah. where he says, "Why callest thou me good?" Yes, only the Father. That can be read in various ways. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that's Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I guess that's where your framework lays is truly being good, not appearing. Yeah. A good person on the Christian view is one whose life is animated and pervaded by agape love. So that's how you define it. Well, that's in Christian terms. I do, in secular terms, I do it another way. But one of the things I have to deal with constantly is the idea that no one knows what good is anymore. You can't tell a good person from a bad one. And maybe there is no difference, or it's socially constructed. And I think that's just so radically false to human life. People generally have a pretty good idea of who's a good person and who's not. And it nearly always comes out in terms of the will to help and care for themselves as well as others. That's a good person. Yes. When you read that text, yeah. the whole text, not just that text, yeah, right. it certainly seems like what he's talking about there is to be a loving person. Exactly right. That you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Now, when that language is used biblically, that always means have the nature of. Like when Jesus' nicknames James and John sons of thunder, he means... They're always thundering. They have the nature of thunder. Or children of wrath, they're people who are wrathful. So that's, that language there, that's a wonderful reference uh, to the end of chapter 5 of Matthew. Be you perfect, be you complete, be you mature as your Father in heaven is. And that means fully functional. And that has an assumption about human life and why we are here together, and who is good and who is not. Now, I talk to this about my classes in a secular university, and it doesn't take three jumps until they're on board. If you can get them out of all of the philosophical and cultural confusion. And you ask, I ask them a question. Uh, anyone here like to be a bad person? Never get anyone who says that. Never. 
I had one girl once who had been listening to Madonna who has a line, only bad girls are good. That's what she thought. Now I'd like to be a bad person because that was a good person. And people always have a very acute sense because they have to know who to trust and who not to trust. I think you had your hand up. Yeah, it's just um, around this term good, a good person. Yeah. A good and honest heart. Then also I've got Romans 3. There's none good, no, not one. Different context. Look at the context. What what Paul is working on in Romans is people who want to say, I'm good. And they want to say, I'm okay before God. No, 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 you're not. If that's how you're thinking about it. Right? But that doesn't mean that there's no one that is good, a good person. Uh, and you look at having an honest and good heart. See, that means something definite in the context, in particular, that they took in the word and reality of the kingdom of God and bore the fruit of it. And I would think that would be a pretty good equal to saying a good person is someone who is pervaded by agape love. So this is an important point, okay? This is an important point. Because it has to do with how our expectations as to how we lead our life, and does it matter whether we're good people or not? And many people will tell you it doesn't matter because there's no one good, right? No one's good. Well, if you're referring to someone standing before God and saying, I'm good. No, you don't do that. But if you're referring to, see, this is where, like one of my old mentors as a pastor and a preacher had a sermon, a good man lost and a bad man saved. And the text was the Pharisee that went down to the temple to pray and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other man. And you had the other guy over here pulling his hair out and beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the outcome of that practically for many, many people in our culture, they have taken it over from the misunderstanding of the Christian religion is, it doesn't matter whether you're good or not. And sometimes that's transformed. Nobody's good. Now you cannot square, that's, that, see that goes with people who take Romans 7 to be the final stage of Paul's spiritual development. The things I would that I do not, the things I would not that I do. And I'm just going to be here in brokenness and failure until I die. Now that's a popular picture. And you see that in many contexts where brokenness is exalted as the final stage of spiritual development. Rather than as a necessary stage to pass through. But you don't live there. Paul didn't live there, and that's what Romans 8 is about. That's where he lived. Can I ask one follow-up question? If if the definition of good is agape love, can someone get there without an interactive... Not in any way I know of. 
Yes, right. <laughs>